We are continuing this morning with our look at the sermon letter to the Hebrews. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll be able to find that on page 1277. Over the last several weeks, we have seen the author to the Hebrews, who of course we don't know who it was ultimately other than the Lord, uh, but we've seen the author call these Christians uh, in the midst of a hard circumstance to faithfulness on the basis of Jesus' identity, of his dual natures as both God and human, as both God and man, uh, the nature, the identity of Jesus, and then to warn them of the need to live out the faith that they claim. But for all that there is a dire warning for those who claim Christ to pursue Him, lest their claim of faith in Him be proven false, there's a deeper reality of the promises on which we stand, the promises made. This week, using the same passage from Psalm 95 that we've been looking at the last several weeks, uh, that the author applied as warning, Now the author fleshes out their hope from that same passage. Now, as always, when we open God's Word together, we need His Spirit to speak to us through it. So if you're able, please stand now as I pray and remain standing as I read from Hebrews 4. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to Your Word desperately in need of Your truth. And we we know we can find Your truth in Your Word, and yet, if You do not restrain our sin... We will twist it, we will pervert it to mean what we want it to mean and not what you meant by it. Lord Jesus, give us your spirit today to restrain our sin, to open our eyes that we might see your truth clearly, see you clearly in your word. Soften our hearts that we would believe it and apply it faithfully. We pray, Lord, that your name would be glorified in this, the reading and the preaching of your word today. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 4, the first 13 verses. This is God's word. Actually, let me back up. I'll read 319 just to get us into it. So we see that they were unable, they, the, the wilderness generation, were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, justice to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united to it by faith in those who listened. For we who have believed enter the rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God rested from his. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. So my kids, Ivy and George, love having us tell stories about when they were little. Their current, probably their favorite story right now, is of the time that uh, George was uh, maybe one uh, and Ivy, so Ivy was about three. Uh, I was at work, Holly was at home with the kids, and she had to go out of the room for a minute. And uh, when she came back, and it really was not more than a minute, when she came back, she found George standing over a tissue box with all of the tissues pulled out in a pile on the floor. And Holly looked at him, and, and you know, of course, he looked up at her and then immediately said, Ivy, pointing at his sister. He's standing over the box, but he's pointing at his sister anyway. You who are parents probably remember going through the terrible twos with your kids. Uh, I certainly remember that stage with ours. And don't, don't get me wrong, my kids are great. They're sweet kids. Generally, they're happy and they're willing to go along and, and generally pretty obedient. But as each of them reached that point in their developmental uh, stages there, and they began to explore the world around them, they began to push some boundaries to see where those boundaries were, Holly and I began to learn the hard way that there were things that we just didn't need to teach Ivy and George. Impatience, willfulness, stubbornness, though they got that honest from me, but whatever. Uh, Disobedience came naturally to them. I remember how jarring it was when we first began to have to reprimand them more often, not for They just didn't know that that was the thing they were supposed to do, but it started to be, yeah, they knew that, and they did it anyway. And we started having to reprimand them for actual active disobedience. We would tell Ivy no, Ivy in particular, about something, and she would look look over her shoulder at us, grin impudently, and carry right on doing what we had just told her not to do. Some of that sounds familiar to some of you. Um pushing boundaries. Now, we all have experience with disobedience, with the consequences of disobedience. Uh, Even if you don't have children yourself, you've been a child, and so you're familiar with disobeying and the consequences thereof. But think back. Think back as you work through, as you consider that, what was the most effective way to prevent disobedience? for your child or for yourself as a child, what, was, what worked best for you to prevent disobedience, to uh, save you from future disobedience? My suspicion is that punishment after the fact wasn't enough to provoke good behavior later. Now, it helps, sure, but generally fear of punishment primarily motivates us not to avoid disobedience, but it motivates us to avoid being caught disobeying. And let's just be honest there. Fear of punishment leads us to hide better. 
sure, discomfort, physical, psychological, whatever, it's something that we want to avoid as much as we can. But ultimately, most of us need something more than simply avoidance of pain to motivate us into true obedience. If you're at all like me, you know what could, likely will happen when you disobey God. But fear of the consequences alone generally isn't enough to motivate you to, li- to pursue faithfulness any more than fear of a spanking could motivate you as a child to obey. just motivates you to hide it better. There are some expe- exceptions. Fear of punishment de- generally doesn't teach us don't disobey. It teaches us don't get caught. So what does it take us to motivate? What does it take to motivate us to joyful obedience? We love our sin. I mean, let's just be honest. We love our sin or we wouldn't keep doing it. So what could make us want to stop? Thomas Chalmers, who was an author, pastor a couple of centuries ago, famously said that it takes the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, you not only have to stop loving your sin, you have to love something else more and replace the love of sin with love of something else that's better. The expulsive power of a new affection. It's not enough just to hate your sin. To motivate any true change, you need a love to pursue, something better that is more beautiful that you are pursuing, not just something awful that you're running away from. A view of beauty or goodness, a positive vision of the results of obedience is far more effective than just a negative vision of the consequences of disobedience. And we looked last week at the author's warning to the Hebrews in the, the first couple of verses in chapter 4, uh, that they stand in a similar position to the wilderness generation. They, both generations had received the good news, the word of God, that salvation can be for them, and thus entrance into God's perfect, complete rest. The wilderness generation disobeyed. They did not receive the rest that was promised. And the Hebrews should seek to avoid the result that the wilderness generation got, that they should, uh, in fact, pursue faithfulness throughout their lives, even when they're in the deserts of life, even when it's hard. They should pursue faithfulness so as not to be excluded from God's rest. But again... Fear of negative consequences is ultimately insufficient to motivate heart change. So the author here takes that same passage from Psalm 95, referring back to the Exodus generation, and then that clearly shows the warning that we looked at over the last couple of weeks, and he draws out the hope that is implicit in the passage that maybe is easy to overlook. Uh, The hope that God's promised rest really, excuse me, really exists that is real. Second, that the hope of God's promised rest still endures now. And finally, a vision of the experience of God's promised rest. The hope exists, it endures, and it will be experienced for us. Now, as I've said, the beginning of chapter 3 through 4.13, through the whole passage that we read today, is fundamentally a single unit. It's a single argument. uh, If a complex one with a lot of pieces. Uh, Obviously, that's too much to cover in one sermon, so we've taken several weeks to get through it. But at heart, it's a single thought which the author recaps. Let me read again uh, 3.19 and 4.1. 
The author says, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. As we talked last week, in the mind uh, of the author, there is a very real danger that some of those who are professing faith in Christ will be found to have been imposters in the final evaluation. Those who seemed to be Christians, who talked the good talk, but who maybe whose lives don't measure up, will, not, will be found not to be, have been Christians at all. If that could happen to an entire generation of God's people in the wilderness, if that generation who had seen such mighty acts of God, if that generation could be excluded from God's rest because of unbelief, how much more so do we need to be aware? How much more so do we need to strive to be faithful to the end regardless of circumstances? Whatever they had seen, whatever words of God they had heard, verse 2 ultimately didn't benefit them because they didn't believe. Those who listened highlights here the difference, and there's, there's some subtle wordplay here. There's a difference between those who listened and those who actually hear. My, uh, as, as a kid, I was very good at listening but not hearing, as it were. Um, more specifically, my mother got so frustrated at my selective hearing. I was very good at being aware that something had been said and just ignoring it if I didn't like it. Yeah, I'm apparently talking about children, childhood disobedience today. I don't, hadn't really intended that, but here we are. Um, to put it another way, it, it, it's something we're all prone to, to, to hear something, to, to, to be aware that it exists in the world, but not connect it to our lives, not actually act on it. You know, whatever word, whatever language you attach to that, to, to be aware of it, to maybe have a head knowledge of it, but not have it sink in and actually affect the way that we live, not act on what we have heard. Those who died in the wilderness heard the truth of God's faithfulness to His promise that He was going to give them a good land, that He was going to give them rest. But they believed either that He could not fulfill that promise or that He would not fulfill His promise. And so they didn't act on what they heard. And their unbelief prevented their entrance into the land that had been promised to Abraham. But as real as the danger to the current generation, to the Hebrews generation, uh, of repeating that failure, as real as that danger is, it also highlights the very hope that the wilderness generation failed to grasp, failed to believe. And it's a hope that still endures today. Verse 4 seems not to make a whole lot of sense on the surface of it, right? We enter the rest, as he said, they shall not enter the rest. Wait, what now? That doesn't seem to match up. Here, unlike in chapter 3, here the emphasis is not on the prohibition, but on the fact that it is God's rest. The rest that is promised is not found in the physical land of Israel. Though the land was certainly a piece of the promise, a foretaste perhaps, the ultimate, ultimately the, the land, the physical land, was just the barest hint of the first foretaste of the true rest. 
not the fullness of that rest. How, why is this important? How do we know it? It was a pretty common understanding in Israelite culture in that day, uh, in the, the, the religion of the day, um, to understand that the return from exile, when Israel came back out of exile from Babylon, um, the return from exile, from then onward, the people had failed God pretty dramatically. They had worshipped other gods, and even when they worshipped the true God, they did so in really whatever way they thought was best, rather than how God had commanded His people to worship. And because of that disobedience, the promise of a land of their own, which had been fulfilled under Joshua, had been at least partially revoked, taken away. There was a strong sense of having missed out completely. Because they had, as a people, received the promise and then been unfaithful and lost it. Because from the exile on, Israel was ruled by a foreign pagan empire. It was to an extent a people adrift, hoping that God would be merciful in the afterlife, which not all of them even believed in anyway, uh, and while those who trusted Jesus had a new hope, had a renewed basis for believing that God would, in fact, provide that hope, for those of Jewish background, the Hebrews here, that sense, <clears throat> excuse me, that sense of having missed out on the promise of God would have tainted everything. This was part of their preconception of how the world fit together, that we as a people failed and have now missed out on the promise. The Easter season officially started this week. I don't know if you follow the church calendar at all, but Lent began this past Wednesday. Uh, in a month or so, we'll celebrate Palm Sunday, the day when we remember Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. When the crowd shouted, Hosanna! Blessed be the name of the Lord. Glory to the King. It was a good day. But the crowds who shouted Hosanna were not looking for the Savior that Jesus actually was. They were looking for a political savior, for a warrior king who would conquer Rome and would free Israel from foreign influence. Their hope was that the land of promise would be restored to Israel. So they were looking for a king who would lead an Israelite army against the emperor, a king who would conquer the Romans and cast them out of Israel until the cross until the cross, even Jesus' closest disciples had the same hopes, had the same expectations. Until the resurrection, really until Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit. Until then, and maybe even beyond that, believers struggled to hold to a different hope, to a, a hope of the truth, of the kingdom of God, not as an earthly kingdom that would conquer Rome, but as a worldwide kingdom where Jesus reigns directly. For those from a Jewish background, the promised rest was co-located, co-terminus with the land when the land wasn't theirs, as it hadn't been since the exile began, since the conquest of the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. When the land wasn't theirs, then neither was the rest. But, look at verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, 
God would not have spoken of another day later on. The author here has been quoting Psalm 95, which is penned by David, several hundred years after the entrance into the land. If Joshua's entrance into the promised land with the people of God, a full generation, 40 years after that initial failure, if Joshua's entrance into the promised land with the people of God represented the fulfillment of the promise of rest, then why is God still talking about entering into the rest a couple hundred years later in David's day? The truth is that the rest was never about the promised land. The rest was never about the land. The land was to represent rest. was to be a foretaste of God's true rest for the Israelites who had been slaves in someone else's land for 400 years in Egypt and then, you know, again slaves after David's day. But it was just the foretaste, the foreshadowing, not the reality. The author points out here the reality is that God's rest is related to the Sabbath, not to the land. Begun at the end of creation when God rested from all his works and continuing so long as the Sabbath continues. Even God's oath that a specific group of people, a specific generation, would be barred from that rest, from the rest of the land, was at the same time, at the same time, a statement that the rest was real. That there was a rest still to come. One commentator I read uh, said that the point of repeating God's oath here is not to rehearse the condemnation of the wilderness generation, but rather to remind the listeners of God's testimony in Scripture that a resting place truly, really, actually exists. When you take the quote from the psalm along with the quote from Genesis 2, it shows that the Old Testament rightly understood, announces the temporary character of the rest in Canaan and looks forward to a future, final rest of God. The promise of the land of the rest in Canaan was temporary, but there is a rest coming that will be complete. The New Testament hope of ultimate rest from the weariness of struggling against sin and against the devil, against the world, is no different than the Old Testament hope. It is the same hope in both Old and New Testaments. The true promise of God exists and yet endures for God's people. There is a rest, a hoped-for rest. Weary sinner, you who are exhausted fighting your sin, fighting off the world, there is a rest that still exists. It is still future. You have not missed out on it because you happen to live in the wrong century. The rest is still to come. But more than its simple existence, we have to know, we have to believe in such a way as to act. We have to believe in such a way as to act that we can still partake in that rest. And that's why both the psalmist and the author of the Hebrews here emphasize that As long as it is called today, we still have the possibility of entering God's rest. Now, if I were to say as long as it's called today, it would be a poetic way of saying, keep doing it no matter what. 
because every day is always called today, right? And there's an element of that there. There's a little bit of that flavor. As long as we're alive, as long as we're living, we must pursue holiness, pursue faithfulness to God, pursue God Himself in His Word as He has commanded us to pursue Him. We don't get to do things our own way to make up how we are going to be faithful to God based on what we like. We do it, we, we pursue God the way He has commanded us to do it. We don't get to tell God that he will now find this thing pleasing even though he's never liked it in the past. What do I mean? Imagine for a moment if I went to Holly and I told her, I know that you used to hate fish, but I have decided that from now on you're going to like fish. And in fact, for date night tonight, we're going to go out and have a fish fry. How do you think that would go for me? Probably not well. In the same way, as we pursue holiness, as we pursue the knowledge and faithfulness to God, we don't get to make up for ourselves what that will be or tell Him how we think it should be. I saw a joke online the other day. A a, a church member went up to the pastor and said, you know, I really, I didn't enjoy worship all that much today. The pastor said, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. You and I, don't get to decide on the basis of our culture or preferences or whatever else. We don't get to decide what the Lord will be pleased by, what is or is not acceptable to God. But if we do pursue Him as He has commanded, if we pursue Him trusting that He is good, that He works good for us even when it might not feel much like it, if he is, that, trusting that He is still sovereign over all things, then we can be confident that we will enter His rest. Just as in David's day, just as in the first century when Hebrews was written, today, if you hear His voice, if you encounter Him in His Word, you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, for there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, as I said at the beginning, that a positive vision holds more power for actual change in our lives than a negative one does, right? The author here at least implies what the rest of God will look like. He, He does, but it's easy for us to miss. He mentions several times the Sabbath. And while that for us is most closely associated with the fourth commandment, and a restriction on what you can and can't do on a particular day of the week on Sunday. This actually goes back much earlier. It goes back even before the fall to God's rest in, on the seventh day of creation. Before we as humans sinned at all, before the fall happened, God had already instituted a day of rest. Rest was begun. It is part of the created order of the universe to desire and to need a rest, a day that is a break after work. There is an explicit connection between the Sabbath and the rest that God promises and the perfection of the garden. In one sense, the weekly rest that we take, the weekly Sunday Sabbath rest, points us back to how God created us. The Sabbath is not a result of the fall. It is a result of creation. It points us back to how God created us and where we come from, but it also points us forward. It points us forward to the promise of a true and complete 
rest. Because even the weekly Sabbath that we take, even the time that we take out of our week to recenter our hearts, to recenter ourselves in God's Word, to rest from our normal labors, even that is supposed to point us forward, to remind us that this Sabbath that we have now is not the ultimate hope of rest. It points us forward to the full and complete Sabbath that we will one day enjoy in Christ. Adam's work before the fall, before the fall, Adam had work. His work was to tend the earth. In our minds, we generally reduce that to, you know, what, farmer or maybe herd keeper, uh, animal keeper, steward. While those things would certainly have been included, it was a much larger call than that. It included the full stewarding, the wise use of all of creation, growing and raising and strengthening and causing the flourishing or helping the flourishing of the whole of creation. And that command didn't end with the fall. That call, that purpose, that drive didn't end with the fall. It got considerably more difficult. Don't get me wrong. But it didn't end. The call is the same and it hasn't ended yet. And it won't end. All our jobs, whether paid jobs or not paid jobs, all of our jobs, all of our tasks... All that we work for and strive for in the world that isn't in itself sinful, all of the bringing order from chaos, all of it is part of Adam's call, part of our call as the children of Adam. While the weekly Sabbath is good and necessary, it is like the land of Canaan, a shadow, a foretaste, a pointing forward to the true rest that is yet to come. According to Revelation, the true king will return, will reverse, completely reverse the curse, will invite his people into complete and perfect rest. A rest which is not merely for our bodies, though it will certainly be for that, uh, but it will also be a rest for our whole selves, spirit, soul, body, the whole complex thing that is you if you are a Christian, will be invited into God's rest. Body and soul united perfectly without the constant struggle between body and soul that we experience all the time now. More even than that, it will be a rest defined by proximity to and relationship with God Himself. Let me read from uh, Revelation 21. Uh, This is verses 3 to 5. I heard, John writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The Sabbath rest of God, the Sabbath rest of God of which we will partake if we are truly His, is a positive 
vision to inspire us to pursue it, to inspire obedience and faithfulness in us, to inspire lifelong mortification of my sin, pursuit of holiness, because I will one day partake in that perfect rest. I want that day to come as quickly as possible. I want the experience of that rest as soon as I possibly can. And so I will strive for it as much as possible in this life as a response to what the Lord has done. Complete peace for body and soul, rest from struggling and strife, not just the lack, not just nothingness, but of wholeness, of unity entirely within yourself, of unity being completely known and perfectly loved by the only one who is able to judge rightly, the only one whose opinion actually matters. Fear of negative consequences can only inspire us to hide better. But verse 13, no one can hide from God. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. No one can hide from the Lord. Which is why Good Friday is necessary. Death was required by the law for our failure to keep the law. Christ had to die in my place had to die in your place. He had to die for you to secure your Sabbath rest. If you are relying on yourself, if you are relying on your basically good behavior that you're better than the other people you know, that you're generally a decent human being. We, we heard in Sunday school this morning that 90% of people think they're an above average driver. Let's be honest, it's a higher percentage than that that think that they're better than the average person. If you're relying on your good deeds, on yourself, on your good behavior, on the fact that you're not as bad as so-and-so, if that's your hope, then you will be like the generation lost in the wilderness. You are hearing, but you are not listening. You are not believing. You cannot save yourself. You cannot bring anything to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. The people of Jerusalem wanted the triumphant king, the all-conquering Lord, the military leader, because they thought they were good enough. They just needed someone to take this external thing away, so send us a military leader. They were wrong, and so are we when we fall into that same thinking, which is most of the time. The hope of rest in Christ is real. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. Let us pursue holiness in union with Christ on the strength that God gives us through His Son and by the indwelling of His Spirit so that when the just judge examines us, we are found to be perfectly hidden in Christ who was perfect perfectly hidden in His holiness, perfectly covered by His blood, so that when the judge looks at you, he sees Jesus' perfection and says, Well done, 
come in and enjoy the rest prepared beforehand. That is our only hope. So let us, because that rest exists and is still available, let us pursue it with the whole of our being so that we will be found faithful in Christ. Let's pray.